The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Today we are returning to our series of messages in the book of Colossians, so please turn <clears throat> excuse me, in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, where we will be reading verses 16 through 23. And as you are turning there, let me say that this section uh, is perhaps the most difficult one in the book of Colossians to interpret. And it's also somewhat uh, difficult to apply, given the fact that the false teaching that provoked Paul to write what he did uh, doesn't find a perfect counterpart uh, in our day and time. But there are enough parallels between what the Colossians faced in the first century and what we face today to make our study of this text relevant and meaningful. Now, perhaps the best way to approach this passage is to provide you with a summary of its argument and then focus on specific items that are of special concern for us today. So please follow along as I read Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. I pray, Father God, that your word would go forth today accomplishing the eternal purposes for which you send it. Uh, may it be good seed sown on good ground in each and every heart here. Let not the enemy have access to it to steal it away, but let it bear much lasting and abiding fruit uh, in the time to come. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding of your word. May we be doers of your word today and not hearers only deceiving our own selves. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now for my summation of what Paul is saying in these verses. The false teachers in the Colossian church claimed that they were able to attain a heightened form of spirituality and holiness independently of Jesus Christ. 
And we see that in verse 19. At its heart, then, this false teaching advocated a pathway to fullness and favor with God that refused to rest satisfied in all that we have in Jesus Christ alone. Similar to what Paul said in uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, which we looked at previously. In order to achieve this elite status, they insisted that a person must follow a rigorously ascetic approach to life. And this entailed abstinence from strong drink, most likely wine, and certain kinds of food, perhaps meat. Uh, One must also be meticulous in the observance of certain religious festivals and holy days. We see this in verse 16. This particular form of asceticism required that one deny himself basic bodily needs and be willing to endure other forms of physical mistreatment. The leaders of this movement apparently had created a long list of prescribed activities from which one must be diligent to abstain. If a person proved faithful in abiding by these extra-biblical and ascetic practices and engaged in uh, fervent worship of angels, then one might expect to receive uh, religious visions in which things inaccessible to the ordinary believer are seen and experienced. And all of this served to mark them out as spiritually superior when compared to the average individual. Now, Paul's response to such alleged religious behavior is quite pointed, and it is unequivocal. He tells us that we should not let such people judge us as inferior or disqualify us from attaining the ultimate prize— fellowship and acceptance with God, simply because we don't follow their instructions. After all, Old Testament religious festivals and holy days were a mere shadow, he says, pointing to Jesus Christ in whom they are fulfilled. So in other words, if we have him, Paul says, we don't need them. We don't need these other things. As much as you might think that this sort of quote-unquote religious commitment is the height of spirituality, it is in fact the product of fleshly and ungodly thoughts, Paul says, and is the result of refusing to seek strength and guidance and growth from God through the person of Jesus Christ. After all, if you have died with Christ, as verses 11 through 15 uh, indicate that you have, and again, we looked at those verses previously, why would you want to go on living as if the world and those demonic spirits that seek to control it are in charge of your life? This is Paul's argument in verse 20. So he urges us to resist their efforts to enslave us, fight against the inclination to submit to their demands and decrees. They are obsessed with religious activities and material things that will ultimately decay and perish and have no place in the life of the age to come. Furthermore, their approach to godliness, Paul says, is man-made. It didn't come from God. They made it up themselves to promote their own religious agenda. And the allure of such behavior is that on the surface it looks so spiritual. It appears wise and effective in gaining control over one's fleshly desires. But Paul says it does no such thing, afflicting the body or demanding of oneself practices that the Bible nowhere endorses or commands may look like you are uniquely committed to God and on your way to defeating temptation and conquering the impulses of your flesh. But it's just an illusion, he says in verse 23. 
That's the basic gist of the verses we just read. And clearly, Paul is addressing a particularly lethal form of legalism that was threatening the life and the freedom and the joy of the Colossian church. And what I want to do now is look at some of the items in this spiritually destructive perversion of true Christianity, and in particular, three commands that Paul gives regarding them. First, in verses 16 and 17, there is the command, do not let them judge you. Then in verses 18 and 19, there is the command, do not let them, the false teachers, the legalists, disqualify you. And then in verses 20 through 23, there is the implied command, do not let them enslave you. Do not let them judge you. Do not let them disqualify you. Do not let them enslave you. Let's start, first of all, with verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadow, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, there is a sense in which divine grace will always be a threat to human nature. And that is because grace undermines our efforts to justify ourselves. Grace runs counter to human pride and, and, and that impulse we all feel to boast in our own accomplishments. Grace requires that we defer and deflect all praise to God. Grace undermines our best efforts at establishing a list of requirements and, and prohibitions that we can impose on ourselves and others as a condition on which we gain acceptance with God. Grace demands only one thing, church, that all glory and honor and credit be given to Jesus Christ for what he has done not for what we have done. And human nature instinctively hates that. This is why wherever the gospel of grace is preached, legalism rears its ugly head. Once you declare that God has graciously provided everything we need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that fallen human nature will rise up in protest and try to sneak in somewhere a rule or regulation that we, in our own strength, can fulfill or an, obser or an observant or a ritual that we, without God's enabling power, can perform that will enhance our spiritual standing or gain some reward that will put God in our debt. The Colossians had heard and received, by grace, the gospel of grace. They had turned from self-reliance and prideful self-justification to rest wholly in the all-sufficiency of what God had done for them in Jesus Christ alone. But there were some in Colossae, as there are similar folks everywhere in our day, who refused to leave well enough alone. And we know what they were up to because of Paul's passionate, heated exclamation in verse 16, do not let them judge you. Don't let them judge you. Now, the focus of these false teachers was, was multiple 
and varied. But in verses 16 and 17, Paul mentions two things in particular. First, the enemies of grace were insisting that the Colossians abstain from certain food and drink. And this is perhaps a reference, at least in part, to the Old Testament dietary regulations. Uh, But it also additionally goes beyond those regulations because the Mosaic law contained no uh, significant prohibitions concerning what a person drinks. Well, there were some exceptions, as as in the case of those who took a Nazarite vow, but but part of the Mosaic law, the, um, the Mosaic law focused on food, not so much on drink. So this prohibition against certain food and drink uh, was probably drawn at least in part from the the Mosaic Law and even went beyond that. Uh, these people were probably demanding abstinence from meat and strong wine regardless of the amount of intake. They were most likely convinced that abstinence in and of itself was inherently more pleasing to God than participation. In other words, like many today, they believed that self-denial was intrinsically more spiritual or an indication of greater fervency for God, regardless of what the activity or the experience might be. The self-discipline allegedly required to say no to the offer of something to eat or drink was thought to be a mark of genuine piety and commitment. And, of course, this flies in the face of what Scripture so plainly declares is that God has given us, what, all things to enjoy, right? Perhaps they feared that by partaking of certain foods and drink or participating in certain practices, they would be spiritually infected in some way. They might have believed that partaking would diminish their religious fervor and perhaps expose them to even greater evils. But nowhere is this perspective endorsed in the New Testament. Now, it is true, of course, that those who overindulge in drink or eat to excess are rebuked. Drunkenness is never permissible. Gluttony is a sin. But that is not because partaking is itself inherently less godly than abstaining. Do we understand that? And that can be applied to many things, which I'm not going to stand here and make a list now, but many things. Uh, that we or ourselves seek to impose upon ourselves from without uh, in a foolish attempt to be more spiritual. Now, that does not mean there, there are, of course, um, complementary uh, instructions within the New Testament. We are to uh, avoid appearance of evil. We are uh, not to make provision for the flesh. So in the name of liberty and in the name of grace, we don't put ourselves in in, in the pathway of sin. We understand that, right? Um, We don't put ourselves in a position where uh, we are likely to be tempted uh, to sin. Um, We have to be careful because uh, the the regulating principle of our liberty is, is really love. Paul instructs us in Galatians that, um, We are not to use our liberty as an excuse uh, for sin, but by love we are to serve one another. Um, So this is not an endorsement of sin or uh, what the Bible clearly identifies as sinful practices, 
but it is here uh, a clear declaration of, of God's grace. Paul is rebuking the idea that abstaining from certain foods and drinks in and of itself is, is uh, more godly uh, than partaking. Evidently, the heretics in the Colossian church were declaring that those who enjoyed their freedom in Christ to eat and drink within the parameters established in Scripture stood condemned or or were on the threshold of of loss of divine approval or, or some such idea. No, Paul said, don't let them judge you. Don't let, well, they're going to judge you. So what does it mean for us not, we can't, we can't make, we can't, keep them from judging us, but we can keep from yielding to their judgment, right? We can keep from throwing away our divine grace and divine liberty and our freedom in Christ for the sake of pleasing these men, these false teachers. Don't let them judge you. Now, the second feature of this particular brand of legalism uh, also included a Jewish element, the festival and new moon and Sabbath. Mentioned here are no doubt a reference to the holy days of the Jewish calendar, specifically the annual, the monthly, and the weekly observances. The annual festivals, the monthly new moon, and the weekly Sabbath. This very language is used often in the Old Testament to describe the sacred times binding on all under the Mosaic Covenant. Just one example of several. First Chronicles 23, 30, and 31. And they were to stand every morning thanking and praising the Lord, and likewise at evening. And whenever burnt offerings were offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days, according to the number required of them regularly before the Lord. And we see language like that in several places in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 4, 2 Chronicles 31, verse 3, Ezekiel 45, 17, Hosea 2, 11. Uh, this very language, again, used in the Old Testament to describe the sacred times binding on all under the Mosaic covenant. These observances, said Paul, says Paul, were but a shadow of the things to come. And the things to come, of course, is not a reference to what is future to Paul, but what was future to those who lived when the obligation to abide by these holy days was in force. We understand that, right? During the time of the Mosaic Covenant, they certainly had their place. They fulfilled a glorious divine purpose. But the purpose was to point to Christ. (laughs) They were representations of a greater and more substantive reality that is now present in its fullness in Christ and all that we have by faith in him. And that is why Paul exhorts the Colossians and us not to let anyone suggest that they are sub-Christian if they choose not to celebrate these festivals or observe the regulations associated with them during the time of the Old Covenant. Everything they symbolized, everything they foreshadowed, everything they were designed to teach and accomplish has now come to full and final fruition in Jesus. Is a Christian free to abstain from certain foods and drinks? Yes, absolutely so long as you do not impose your choice on others or suggest that they have fallen short of what is acceptable to God. Is a Christian free to observe those religious holy days mentioned in verse 16? Yes, but not because you think that God 
for that reason, now regards you as more holy or more committed or more acceptable than those who do not observe. If you now have in Christ everything and more that those days were designed to provide, why would you want to observe them? Right? Would not your observance come perilous, perilously close to denying that the fulfillment that is in Christ has come? Would not your observance have the potential to undermine enjoyment of who Christ is and what he has accomplished by continually taking you back to the age of shadows and types? In any case, we would do well to heed Paul's counsel here, which essentially is beware the legalist. Beware the legalists. Beware those who pass judgment on spiritual worthiness based on practices and observances that God does not require. What his grace has provided for us in Christ is enough. Amen? Secondly, in verses 18 and 19, there is the command, do not let them disqualify you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You know, coaches today, at all levels of athletic competition, will often deliberately get themselves kicked out of a game as a way of motivating their team. We used to see this in baseball a lot. Team has been lethargic, it's been in a losing streak, there's a bad call, and you know, a Billy Martin or a Earl Weaver would come running out of the dugout screaming and yelling at the umpire. Remember when they used to kick dirt on the umpire? Anybody remember that? It's amazing. They would kick. I remember Lou Pinello once emptied the dugout. He was so irate. He went in the dugout, just started throwing everything out of the dugout on the field, all the bats, the water cooler, screaming at the umpire. I thought he was going to have a stroke, right? Sadly, those days are gone. <laughs> With the implementation of, of instant replay, that was one of the most colorful features of a baseball game. When the, the, the Tommy Lasorda's, they'd, they'd come out and they'd argue with the umpire. Nobody argues with the umpire anymore because they have instant replay, right? But coaches sometimes, as a way of firing their team up, would come out and deliberately cross the line of language or whatever, sometimes even bumping the umpire. You weren't allowed to ever touch, even if your cap touched the umpire, you'd be ejected. So they'd come out and turn their cap around, right? And they'd get their face right into the umpire's face. Well, they would do that to fire up the team and motivate the team. They might have to pay a fine. Maybe they'd lose the respect of certain fans. But they re- regarded it as worth the price if it would serve to light a fire in the hearts of otherwise lethargic and apathetic players. Well, when Paul tells the Colossian Christians, let no one disqualify you, he used a word that in ancient times often meant something along the lines of, to render an adverse decision against someone, or to act as an umpire against you. In other words, to declare you disqualified. Paul's point, if I may be permitted to stretch the athletic metaphor, is don't let anyone throw you out of the ball game for allegedly having violated rules that God has never imposed. 
Amen? Don't let anyone throw you out of the ball game for allegedly having violated rules that God has never imposed. On what basis did these legalists dare suggest that the Christians at Colossae had failed to meet the standards of true discipleship and were therefore spiritually disqualified? F.F. Bruce, at least in part, answers this question by reminding us that, quote, some people love to make a parade of exceptional piety. They pretend to have found a way to a higher plane of spiritual experience, as though they had been initiated into sacred mysteries which give them an infinite advantage over the uninitiated. Others are overprone to be taken in by such people, and that's what Paul was warning about here, for this kind of claim impresses those who always fall for the idea of an inner ring. But, says Paul, don't be misled by such people. In other words, don't let them disqualify you. Don't let them disqualify you. And Paul mentions five things here, characteristic of this sort of spiritual snobbery. First, they insist on asceticism. And the word here is the one typically translated humility in the New Testament. That's interesting. Obviously, though, Paul employs it in a negative capacity here. Uh, The uh, NASV, the New American Standard, renders itself abasement. The idea being that people willingly embrace lowliness and even suffering to enhance their appearance of piety. It is then a false humility. And although the word false does not appear in in, in the original language, it certainly is strongly suggested by the context. And that is how it is translated in the NIV. If you have an NIV that you're reading from, it, uh, it says they're false humility. The kind in which a person proudly wears a medal for being so meek. Right? You've, you've heard it. I'm, I'm humble and I'm proud of it. Right? A few have argued that the word could also mean fasting and, and other forms of bodily rigor and self-deprivation that would set them apart as especially committed and thus uniquely worthy of honor and praise. In fact, in verse 23, Paul again uses the, the word for humility, the word Humility, translated as humility from from the Greek, and associates it with severe discipline of the body. If that is in Paul's mind, he would be referring to what Jesus denounced in Matthew sixteen, in Matthew chapter six, sixteen through eighteen. And when you fast, do not look gloomy, like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. So, let's be clear on this. If Paul is referring to fasting here, uh, he is not denouncing the the practice in and of itself, but it's perversion. If fasting or any bodily discipline is unduly elevated as an essential mark of true spirituality or is employed as a means of parading our piety before others, and asserting our superiority over them, it must be denounced. But if it is pursued for the right reason and practiced according to biblical guidelines, it can be of immense spiritual benefit. Discipline, biblical disciplines are good, amen, when practiced for the right reasons. Paul tells us 
in First Timothy 4, verse 7, I believe, we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Not to parade godliness. Not that the discipline, the practice of the discipline in and of itself marks us as godly. But certain spiritual disciplines, rightly practiced, can lead to godliness. Amen? The discipline of prayer. The discipline of scripture intake. Right? The discipline of worship. The discipline of giving. There's all, and there are some wonderful books on this. Donald Whitney has a tremendous book on this. One of the best books ever written on the subject. The, the, the Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. Uh, in which he uh, gives uh, one chapter to each of, of many disciplines that are uh, very, very beneficial for the Christian to cultivate in their lives. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the perversion. Discipline for discipline's sake. Self-denial. Rigorous self-denial for self-denial's sake. Secondly, they are engaged in the worship of angels. And this is a notoriously controversial statement uh, due to the ambiguity of Paul's words. So I'll just briefly explain the options we have for its interpretation. On the one hand, it could refer to the worship that the angels themselves offer to God. So the, the sense would be worship by the angels or worship by angels, such as we see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. If so, the false teachers were claiming to be extraordinarily spiritual because their worship of God was not in association with that of other merely human participants, but was an elevated and exceptionally unique experience in which they joined with the angelic hosts in heaven to praise God. Now, personally, I doubt that view for several reasons. Although it's grammatically possible, it it just doesn't seem probable. I mean, if it is what Paul had in mind, he was probably rebuking it as a claim made by an exclusive and elitist inner circle who insisted they had an access to the heavenly celebration, which other lesser saints did not. Then, of course, Paul could simply mean that these heretics were worshiping angels. They were worshiping the angels, giving to them the praise and honor that only God is due. I mean, that seems to be the straightforward meaning and is probably what Paul meant here. Although if this is the case, we might wonder why Paul didn't more severely and explicitly denounce such a practice as the blasphemous idolatry that it is. Maybe he didn't have to. You know, maybe that's the obvious on the face of it. And then there's another option. Commentator David Garland points out that, quote, some have claimed that the Colossian errorists understood these angels to be involved in creation and the government of the world. And they worshipped them as their link to God. These angels could be regarded as malevolent and needing appeasement, or as benevolent and bestowing blessing. Their so-called worship may only have involved propitiating them to ward off the evil effects or beseeching them for protection. In other words, they had a superstitious mindset toward these much like people have today, right? That there's a today we see this. This the, um, you know, you go you 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 go into a bookstore, you go into the you know quote unquote religious section, and there's all sorts of books on angels, right? People are fascinated with angels. There are books being written about angels. There are images of angels. You can 
buy all these trinkets associated with angels. So the word translated worship here in our text could well mean something more along the lines of invoking. They're invoking the angels, conjuring. These teachers then are guilty of engaging in the somewhat magical, mystical solicitation of angels to ward off evil or to provide physical protection or to bestow blessing and success on their daily endeavors. In any case, and here's the point, there was in Colossae, and again, oftentimes in our own day, an excessive and inappropriate preoccupation with angels and their involvement in human life. And Paul regarded this preoccupation as detracting from the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we would do well to heed his warning. Amen? Third, they made their case for super-spirituality based on alleged visions they had seen. Perhaps they claimed to experience these visions as a result of extensive fasting and and, and bodily self-discipline, or even while caught up in the rapturous joy and ecstatic swirl of angelic worship, depending again on what that means, of course. In any case, they perceived themselves to be members of an exclusive club of spiritual elitists, on the strength of bizarre and supernatural experiences. Only those, you know, who've been there and done that, you know, who, who've experienced the, this, this, this mysticism of sorts are truly qualified to stand in God's presence. And Paul's concern here is with elitist claims based on alleged visionary experiences that people use to disqualify so-called lesser saints and these are purported supernatural encounters that lead not to godliness but to arrogance as the next point makes clear fourthly they are puffed up without reason because of a sensuous mind or more literally the mind of the flesh i find it instructive that it is possible to be engaged in numerous and intense so-called spiritual activities of a profound supernatural orientation and yet be utterly controlled and driven by the flesh. That's what Paul is saying here. Beware of those who are constantly parading themselves and building their so-called ministries as well as their bank accounts on the basis of repeated extraordinary miraculous experiences. Fifth, and finally, their fundamental problem, as verse 19 makes clear, is that they seek their spiritual strength and sustenance and guidance from something other than Jesus Christ. But God has ordained, church, that true growth, authentic godliness, and a life that pleases and praises him is derived from a conscious dependence upon and drawing of nourishment from the head of the church the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And when these things, these other things, or any other religious activities are pompously cited as signs of a super-spirituality and exploited for personal gain and fame, we would do well to heed Paul's counsel and warning. Thirdly, and finally, verses 20 through 23, do not let them enslave you. Perhaps the most insidious form of legalism is asceticism. Not all asceticism is bad. Many in the church could do with a little self-discipline and self-restraint. Amen? And I I count myself 
among them. We live in an overly indulgent society in which at times the only sin seems to be abstinence. Paul referred to godly asceticism when he spoke of buffeting his body and making it his, making it his body his slave, preparatory to running a race so that he might win. Right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Sinful asceticism, on the other hand, is the sort that he describes here in verses 20 through 23, which reads as follows. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that will perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You cannot conquer the desires of the flesh by imposing restraints from without. It must come from the power of God from within. And, you know, I look at at certain groups, the Mennonites, the Amish, who their, their entire lives... Are, are spent imposing restraint from without. And I can only imagine, and I don't mean, I'm not speaking from experience, I'm not speaking from personal knowledge, I'm speculating. If we were to pull back the curtain and see what life was really like in those communities, I think we would be shocked at the degree of sin that goes on behind those closed doors. I mean, wickedness and, and, and even sexual sin, because you cannot... You cannot outward, legalistic, extra-biblical restraint. Cannot. It is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Amen? And we need to understand that. And Christians, well-meaning Christians, battle for years with, with uh, besetting sins that, could, that they could experience really victory over. Relatively quickly, if if the emphasis was placed where it ought to be, um, and here Paul has in mind those who impose man-made rules concerning the body and one's behavior as a means of enhancing one's relationship with God. For the ascetic, the body is a thing to be punished, denied, and even abused. The body is regarded as evil, and the only way to defeat it is to starve it of anything that might spark desire. Steps are taken to diminish the intake of food and drink to to an irreducible minimum. In brief, asceticism is the belief that if you add up enough physical negatives, you will get a spiritual positive. Mere avoidance becomes the pathway to holiness. And Paul's point here, according to David Garland again, is, quote, that baptism into Christ's death means death to all this stuff. However, and whenever it manifests itself. The key defense for Christians against such error is to hold fast to Christ, the head, and to recognize that we have died with Christ to the elemental spirits reigning over this world with their various rules and ordinances. When we recognize, he says, that we are secure in Christ, we will not be bumped off course by the judgments of others who want to disqualify us in some Paul's response to the legalistic approach to the Christian life is unmerciful. 
and he faults it on four grounds. First of all, such things perish as they are used, he says. These things included in their list of taboos are perishable objects of the material world destined to dissipate even as they are being used. Secondly, such rules are man-made, not divinely given. They are, Paul says, according to human precepts and teachings, verse 22. As I noted earlier, this is the essence of legalism, the demand that others conform to your conscience when God has remained silent. Such rules come not by divine revelation, but by human ingenuity. Third, this approach to spiritual living only seems to be wise, says Paul. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They have an appearance. When you look at someone so dedicated and disciplined, denying themselves the ordinary amenities of life, it is easy to be deceived by the appearance of spirituality. Such people look committed and pious and holy. But appearances can indeed be deceiving. Amen? We need to understand that. Um, Fourth and finally is perhaps Paul's most important statement, as I already alluded to. Notwithstanding the surface spirituality that such religious activities produce, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Rules and prohibitions and self-denial that spring from man's own religious creativity are utterly ineffective in curbing the desires of the flesh. The flesh mocks any such attempt to inhibit its expression. Asceticism in and of itself won't help you keep in check sinful urgings or energize you in the war with temptation. It just won't. Well then, what will? What will? Surely Paul will will do more than merely denounce what is ineffective. Surely he will offer a more biblical alternative. Well, of course he will. Unfortunately, the division made between chapters 2 and 3 in this epistle tends to obscure his point. Paul does indeed have a remedy for fleshly indulgence. A remarkably simple one. And it is found in the immediately following verses of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The liberating truth of that verse one we will consider when we next return to the book of Colossians, is this. Holiness, in this case, the ability to say no to fleshly indulgence, comes not from rigorous asceticism or self-restraint, but from a mind captivated and controlled by the beauty and the majesty of the risen Christ and all that we are in him in the heavenlies. Amen? I'll say it again. Holiness, the ability to say no to fleshly indulgence, comes not from rigorous asceticism or self-restraint, but from a mind captivated and controlled by the beauty and majesty of the risen Christ and all that we have in him in the heavenlies. So, as they used to say in the old movie serials, to be continued. To be continued. Don't. In the meantime, and I'll close with this, don't let anyone judge you. If you, like the Colossians, have heard and received by grace the gospel of grace and have turned from self-reliance and prideful self-justification 
you can rest wholly in the all-sufficiency of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ alone. Don't let anyone disqualify you. True growth, authentic godliness, and a life that pleases and praises him is derived from a conscious dependence upon and drawing of nourishment from the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and not from any of the extra-biblical things like asceticism and mystical worship that so many insist upon as a mark of true spirituality. And thirdly, don't let anyone enslave you. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Finally, if you have not turned to Christ, if you have not turned to Christ from self-reliance and prideful self-justification and are instead relying on your own goodness or righteousness or your own religion or any other person or thing, you need to come to Christ today in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of your sins and the promise of everlasting life. And if you have any questions about that, please see me or Pastor Mike or Pastor Steve, and we would be happy to talk to you more about this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the glorious freedom that we have in Christ. Sometimes that freedom seems too good to be true. And sometimes our flesh rears its ugly head in, in, in attempts to, to, uh, to do for ourselves what God has already done for us. We become spiritually intimidated by legalists and their teaching, and we let them judge us, and we yield to their judgment. We wonder if we have, in fact, been disqualified. And we allow ourselves to become enslaved by things that you never intended for us to be subjected to. We talk so much in this day of political upheaval about our political liberty, our political freedom, we thank you for, the, for a constitution that promises us personal liberty in the governmental and political, the social and cultural realms. And we, and we rightly get very upset when those in power seek to undermine that liberty. How much more so should we be outraged and should we fight against attempts in the spiritual realm to, to subvert our spiritual freedom in Christ, the liberty that you died, Lord Jesus, to provide. So let us be very careful and deliberate in this area of legalism, not to let anyone judge us, disqualify us, or enslave us, that we might walk free in Christ as those whom the Son has set free, giving glory and honor to you, and to your glorious gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.